We ask for your presence, that it would be near, that it would be close as we come before you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks. How many of you have thought in the last two weeks of someone that you really wish was hearing this? A few of you will admit it. I told you on week one, don't do that. There is no one who needs repentance more than you. All right, we're going to go back in. There is a time for jokes. There's a time for uh, brevity. We're going to take a serious tone this morning. I said this in week one of our series on repentance. We're in week three. So in week one, we looked at the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And last week, we looked at the way that that, uh, that love, as we receive it, affects our other relationships as we, as we are shaped into the, the, the image of Christ, as we take on the heart of Christ, uh, the way that it impacts our human relationships. But I said this on week one, when you are possessed by one desire, that is by many orders of magnitude greater than all other desires, when you are able at all times to lay hold of and possess the object of that desire, and the object of your desire is profoundly and supremely satisfying, would this not impact the way that others experience you, especially those most intimately acquainted with you? Would you not seem by appearance, to be someone with a great and powerful inner satisfaction? And would not others note that even when bothered by other difficulties, this satisfaction, this contentment, this fullness and vitality would be observably stable? I've said it both weeks, and we're going to dive into this in more detail today. But the greatest threat is our own self-deception, right? The threat that you face and the work that God wants to do is internal to you. Um, self-deception is uh, a set of things that we've, we've uh, sort of uh, defenses and thought processes or narratives that we've developed to defend our current position. But I'm telling you, When you encounter someone whose life is defined by obedience to the greatest commandment, they're just a different kind of person. There's no way around it. They're just a different kind of person. You guys remember the greatest commandment? If you've been here the last two weeks, you should know this. Matthew 22, beginning of verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I actually love the fact that he says, as yourself, not even more than yourself, just at least as much as yourself. 
And then Jesus says, and everything else in the scriptures, all the law and the prophets hangs on these two commandments. Would you say for yourself, because again, you're reflecting on your own life and experience, being honest before the Lord, knowing there's no shame in judgment. Again, we're looking to the kindness of God. Would you say that love for Jesus dominates your thinking and your planning? Would you say that love for Jesus is the engine that drives your will and fuels your emotions? Would you say that love for Jesus is the blueprint that explains all of your actions and behaviors? Would you say that love for Jesus has transformed your human relationships into something truly supernatural? Obedience to the greatest commandment looks like a radical alignment with the person and purposes of Jesus Christ. An all-consuming love that guides my thoughts, guides my heart, guides my behavior, motivates my emotional responses to the events of my life, to the people around me, and transforms my relationships into something truly supernatural. First John 2, 15, John says this, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Does anyone here love sushi? disobedience. <laughs> Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. John is referring to is the love for God possessed so powerfully that when compared to my attachment to any of the things that the world offers, doesn't barely register those things as being love at all. But only because of my connection to the Lord being so superior in strength over sushi. So do you love the world? Do you love the things in the world, or do you love God? It's a hard question. And again, it's a hard question because I've propped up my own self-deception. I have, I have sidestepped repentance in a way that I can go without it in my life and not feel guilty for ignoring the need for it. I've actually built up a structure to support and explain my lack of love for God. I wanna to speak to four things, and these are not, I'm not necessarily drawing from a specific uh, scripture. Um, 
But these are things that all uh, speak to my own experience and resonate with the experience of many of uh, you as we've been in relationship over the years for uh, self-deceptions, for lies that help us disguise our lack of love for God. The first one is that we redefine love to explain our lack of devotion. Of course, I love God. Love being defined as sort of a generalized sense of commitment to being a morally good person and doing some Christian things on a regular basis. Of course, I love God. We redefine love to explain our lack of devotion. I remember about two months into my marriage, 23 plus years ago. Jenny shared something with me that was pretty devastating. Uh, she said, I, I, I think that you drink too much Coke. And I would like you to slow down your soft drink intake. And I said, well, I would like you not to care about that. I would like to be married to someone who doesn't mind how much Coke I drink. But I do care. And I would like you to reduce your beverage intake. Right, no, I understand. I heard that the first time. Also, I need you to not make that a thing. I need you to not care about that. Interpreted, I fully intend to continue my current rate of consumption, right? <laughs> and I don't want it to be an issue in our relationship, so if you could modify what you want out of me, then we can be happy, we can be at peace. I remember deciding shortly after that, actually, the conflict is not over my... Um, Coke consumption. The real conflict is her awareness of my Coke consumption. <laughs> she doesn't have to know about the 10 a.m. Coca-Cola that I had right after I left the house. It was petty cash. How could she even track it? I even tried Diet Coke as like a, you know, a midway point. Fine, I'll switch to diet. She said, gross, diet's even worse for you. <laughs> we redefine love to explain our lack of devotion. I know that my love for Jesus doesn't look like a life poured out with joy as a sacrifice. But I'm generally committed to the principles of Christianity. I'm generally a good person. I'm doing Christian things. And meanwhile, undercover 
in the secrecy of our own lives, there's no, there's no real content to our personal walk with Jesus. Maybe a fleeting prayer, maybe a moment of conviction. The second self-deception is we tell ourselves that our spiritual lethargy is just a season. There are unique life situations, factors, that prevent me from living a life of complete devotion right now. Um, but that's going to change. That'll change. Um, I just need to, I need to um, get to certain uh, goals that I have for myself or get to, you know, certain stage of my life. And um, anyone uh, who's here who is 70 and older um, is that true? Life get less complicated? But we tell ourselves that, right? It's just a season. I know I'm not, I'm not really pursuing, like really going after God. I'm not really, I don't feel that like draw to him, but also it's just been like, you know, this last 17 years has been really exhausting. <laughs> Third lie is we, we convince ourselves that we tried everything and that our apathy is the product of other people's failures. I tried really hard for quite a while to deal with my issues, to grow in a relationship with God, but I just couldn't find the right mentor. I couldn't find the right counselor. I couldn't find the right pastor. I couldn't find the right church. I couldn't find the right friends. I would like to pursue Christ more fervently, but I've just never been given the proper chance, the proper opportunity, the right tools. No one actually has the power to prevent you from going all in. Only you do. It's not 1.38 p.m., is it? I think that clock might be off. If it is, this has gone much longer than I was anticipating. <laughs> Sorry, now you all know that there's a clock there that I reference. <clears throat> the fourth lie, we tell ourselves that loving God, that a loving God is totally fine with our lack of devotion. God loves me and loves me so perfectly He's not in any significant way bothered by my lack of love for him. It's a consumer mindset to relationships that I promise you, if it's in effect in your relationship with Jesus, it's in effect in all of your relationships. You're a taker, not a giver. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You were set free by the love of God. There's no more condemnation. There's no more shame. And from that place of embracing the absolute perfect and full acceptance of God, don't in that place say that I can do whatever I want because sin is to your destruction. Sin is always its own punishment. This is actually addressed in Revelations 3. God actually says, 
um, ice cold I can handle. People who are angry at me, I can handle. People who are mad about the way I do things, I can handle. But the person who is just lethargic, who is apathetic, who has no, no inner desire for me, and yet excuses and explains that lack of desire, that person, they've deceived themselves. I want, I want nothing, he actually says, I want nothing to do with that person. It's not a relationship. It's a, it's a deception of theirs that they continue to hold up to convince themselves that we have a relationship and we don't. So I get to this part in my own study and in my own walk with the Lord, and I have to ask a question. But why? Why do we, why do we invest so much mental and emotional energy in explaining and defending our lack of absolute devotion for the Lord characterized by passion, commitment, a sense of intimacy. I know him and he knows me. I love him and he loves me. He gave himself for me and I joyfully give my life to him in every respect. Why, why do we so, why do we work so hard to maintain the frail structure of lies and self-deceptions that keep us from acknowledging our lack of love for God. Any time that you're afraid, you're protecting something, you're guarding something, I would suggest that the reason that we go to such great length to excuse and explain and justify even to ourselves our current lack of devotion to Christ is because we are protecting our idols and God always represents a real and credible threat to our idols. The things that we have in our life that we have clung on to, that we know in some way violate my capacity to walk in obedience to the great commandment, I cannot fully give myself to God, because I feel that to fully say yes to him might compromise this thing that I need, that I love, that I value, that I treasure, that I'm dependent upon. And if I were to turn fully to him in repentance, this is in jeopardy. And quite frankly, I think most of the time it's just our pride. Imagine the humiliation if people knew how much of a sinner you really are. And imagine the fellowship 
if we were all in the same boat. God designed us to need him. We were created for relationship with him. Ephesians 2, verse 10, it says that we are his workmanship created uh, for good works by him, meaning that we are not only made according to his design, but we're made according to his design purposes. And we, uh, because of our sinful nature, because of our brokenness, we're deceived into believing that there are other better sources for getting our needs met. And we can't trust, we do not fundamentally trust that God is what I need. That relationship with him is what I was made for. That loving relationship with him is fundamentally not only the thing, but the only thing that will ever fundamentally satisfy the desires of my heart. Remember Eve in the garden? Serpent shows up and says, what if, what if, just stick with me here, what if there was something better doesn't want you to have. What if there was something better than the goodness of God and he's withholding it from you? Wouldn't you want to know what that is? Wouldn't you want to try it? Wouldn't you want to taste it and just see, just find out if it's better? Why, yes, I do. Our sinful appetites crave and our sinful minds defend that which we believe will satisfy our sinful heart's desire. Keep in mind and none of this has to be on the level of consciousness. We are oftentimes blind to what motivates us and what drives our behavior. A certain amount of success, a certain amount of accomplishment, certain wealth goals for myself, if I could get to that place, that will be the thing that makes me whole. That is what I need. When in reality, I am a slave to my ambition, all the while explaining away my lack of love for God, my lack of devotion. Of course, I'm committed. It's just a season. God understands. Once I get to these necessary milestones, things will be different. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if that's you in any way, that resonates at all, that success, that accomplishment, that recognition, that wealth, whatever it is, that is your God. That is the thing towards which your passions are aimed. 
And the very idea of repentance triggers a deep fear within me that to turn to him would mean to potentially jeopardize my pursuit of these things that I must have. There's something you should keep in mind. Fear is a liar. And so I fill my life with distractions and self-deception so I don't have to address the absence of a vital, life-giving, loving relationship with Jesus that has truly captured my soul. I never stop to wonder why I always have time for work and never seem to have enough time for God. Why I'm relentless in building my own kingdom and yet continually uh, fail to invest in the establishment of His. I'll tell you why. Our sinful appetites crave and our sinful minds defend that which we believe will satisfy our sinful heart's desire. This pleasure, this sensual enjoyment, this feast of the senses, feeding this appetite that I have is what will give me the experience of happy and wholeness. It is what I need. And in reality, I am a slave to my body's demands, all the while explaining away my lack of love for Christ. Of course, I'm committed. After all, I've tried everything to not want these things so badly, and nothing worked. I'm sure God understands. And you need to understand that meeting your needs, your, the needs of your appetite, has become your God. The very idea of repentance triggers a deep fear within me. I should mention this again. Fear is a liar. So I fill my life with distractions and self-deceptions so I don't have to address the absence of a vital, life-giving, loving relationship with Jesus that has captured my soul. And I never stop to wonder why I'm so faithful at feeding my appetites for things of this world and never have any appetite for God. There's a certain kind of approval, a certain recognition, being seen as a beautiful, capable, confident person. This is what will make me happy. This is what gives me a sense of wholeness, of being okay with myself. It is what I need, and I make myself a slave to building an image of my own goodness, my own beauty, my own moral purity, all the while explaining away my lack of love for Jesus. Of course I'm committed to him. Why do you think I work so hard on myself? The approval of others, the praise of others, even the envy of others is my God. And the very idea of repentance triggers a deep fear within me. I could be seen as flawed. I could be seen for who I truly am. And so I fill my life with distractions and self-deception so I don't have to address the absence of a vital, life-giving, loving relationship with Jesus that has captured my soul. 
and I never stop to wonder why I'm so faithful at self-improvement and yet so detached in my relationship with God. I'll tell you why. Because our sinful appetites crave and our sinful minds defend that which we believe will satisfy our sinful heart's desire. I don't stand here as your judge. If I did, I would do myself. There's nothing of what I just shared that I believe will resonate more with one of you than it resonates with me. I recognize, I'm deeply, personally aware of how difficult it is to recognize the very cultural air that we breathe how difficult it is to truly be in the world without allowing the world to get its grip on you. Second Timothy 3, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. Why will it be difficult? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That last line blows my mind. He says, all of the previous characteristics, I'm actually describing someone who professes godliness. And yet there's no power to it. I want to read you this excerpt from 2 Kings. This is, it's a little bit... It's a real, kind of a weird thing, but I'm going to read you a little bit of the story of 2 Kings. Basically, the context is that all the people come into the land of the promised land that God had given them, and he says, you know, above all else, don't worship other gods. And they're like, okay, um, got it. And then it says, but they did anyways, but they also loved God, but they also continued to worship idols, which means they didn't love God, but they, but they did love God, but they also wanted to love these other things. You track with that? Listen to this. This is 2 Kings 17, beginning in 33. It won't be on the screen, so just listen. They feared the Lord, and they served their own gods, according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. This is what everyone does. To this day, they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. 
The statutes and the ordinance and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe and do forever, and you shall not fear other gods. The covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all of your enemies. However, they did not listen. They did according to their earlier custom. So, while the nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, and their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Holding a form of godliness, but denying its power. No supernatural transformation, no radical love for God, no life of obedience and holiness fueled by affection for Jesus, no joyful sacrifices for his purposes. They loved God and they clung to their idols. And God says, and also, they did not love God. And they don't get to redefine what love looks like. at this point in my own preparation that I just start to feel kind of, (laughs) you know what I mean? Has my life of love for God been worthy of his love for me, the sacrifice that he made? We cling to our idols because the thought of repentance triggers our own fears. And I want you to know this morning that if that's where you're at, because, because you, don't, you don't know quite how to get there, you can't see the solution in your mind, you can't uh, sort of negotiate where this is gonna land, how it's gonna end up. You cannot solve your lack of love for God. You cannot break the cycle. Your idols are your masters. And the only way to usher in the saving hand of God is through repentance. Repentance is not, I know what to do now. Repentance is, I have nothing. God, if I don't have you, I have nothing. This brings us to what is for every single person here this morning, a critical juncture that you will revisit again and again throughout your lifespan. And each time you revisit it, it is a life-defining moment in time. Will I say yes to the gentle invitation of Jesus to repentance? Or will I say yes to the powerful voice of fear? 
After all, I could lose everything. And for those who are at that critical juncture and you've not been able to fully sell yourself to repentance, to really go all in with Christ, to risk everything, I know how that feels. And everyone who's been there knows that feeling of delay. It is soul-crushing. And the longer that I stall, the heavier I feel. Psalms 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. David didn't turn to Jesus because he was so in love with him. He turned because he couldn't do it anymore. And so I acknowledged my sin. I stopped hiding. I said, I will confess. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. For some of you here right now this morning, you feel the heaviness. Actually, Chris, can I have you guys come up? You feel the heaviness. You feel that hollow place where there should be a powerful experience of love for God. And your vitality has been drained away. And in your heart, maybe even sitting here this morning, in your heart, you are negotiating you might be falling to the temptation to diminish the severity of your own brokenness, telling yourself that small measures are better than drastic ones, and that fixing yourself is a better plan than just repentance. And I want you to know, the invitation is before you now. You can just choose repentance right now. You can just say yes to the Lord and risk it. Go for it. Say, I'm done. It's too much. It's too heavy. And I would say, too, even to the mature here this morning who have walked long with the Lord, isn't it amazing how there's things along the way that we'll pick up without even really realizing that we're carrying? And then there's this moment where we go, oh, I don't remember. When did I grab this? It does feel heavy though, right? And the invitation to you is the same. It's just repentance. Lord, I don't want to carry this. I'm sorry, I don't even, honestly, it's just out of my own brokenness. It was just out of habit. I am a sinful man. And yet God's grace is sufficient.
Therefore, repent and return. Acts 3.19. Maybe a better word would be, so repent and run. sins can be wiped away. Here it is. The beauty of the gospel is that right on the other side of repentance, times of refreshing. The very opposite of your worst fears, times of refreshing that feeling of being alive to God. What a gift, and one that you could not merit if you were given a thousand years and a thousand lifetimes to do so. It's a gift. And the invitation is to you now. Times are refreshing. So I'm gonna take a minute Take a couple of minutes and just come before the Lord. And again, you can do repentance any way that you want. If you want to just deal with the Lord right now where you're sitting, that's fine. Uh, if you want to come down here and, and make it a special moment with the Lord, um, maybe you're one of those people who feels like, well, if I come down here, people might think things are worse than they are. Then you should probably come down here, right? <clears throat> because repentance is all in. Well, let's take a moment. Let's just come before the Lord. Would you, would you deal with the Lord yourself? I'm going to stay up here for a minute or two. Just ask the Lord what he's leading to, uh, you to do, leading you to lay down, leading you to confess. And don't solve it. Just say yes. Now's the time to act. Now's the time to say yes to the moment that God's put in front of you. If God's moving on your heart, I want to encourage you guys to respond to that, to take that time to say, Lord, what are you doing? And to say yes. It'll be prayer after if you guys want to um, get prayer for anything. Also, as always, you guys can grab someone next to you. You can grab a friend and say, hey, here's what the Lord is doing. Would you pray with me for a minute?